together. And tonight, I want to take you to a particular passage. So if you'll turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Okay, and if you're there, let's just remember a couple of terms. It's been a little bit since we've been here at Wednesday nights. So, uh, hermeneutics, what is it? What are we talking about? Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. That's pretty simple. It's an art, yes. It's a science, absolutely, because there's formulas to use and to not use. There is a right way and a wrong way to interpret the Bible. That is true. And what is the way that we interpret the Bible? Well, we use something that has been called the grammatical historical method for biblical interpretation. And so what that means is we take into account the historical cultural context, the setting, along with grammar and syntax. In other words, it's time and history mattered and the words that were used mattered right? Both of those are true. And which words are we primarily concerned with? The words we find in our English Bible or the words in the original languages, which trumps the original languages, correct? And how did we come about with what words were used? Because when we look at the original manuscripts, or none of them are original, but we look at the manuscripts that we have and we, we compile them and we realize there's a bunch of differences between them, there's a process there. And what's that called? Somebody knows it. Starts with text. Textual criticism. Textual criticism takes all these manuscripts that might have variations in them and uses a process to determine with uh, as much likelihood as we can what the originals would have said. Okay, because again, we don't have any of the originals. And so when we're reading, words matter. What words are there? Which, what words are we even talking about? So what words are there matter. And so when we're reading in our English Bible, does it matter to us the English rendering? It does. And so if we have a paraphrased Bible, it's not going to give us a word. For, it's not going to give us a literal translation of the original languages. It's going to give us a thought it's going to give us a thought-for-thought thought translation. Here's the idea. But anytime we translate, and actually more often, anytime we paraphrase, what are we really doing? Um, there, there's a matter of interpretation involved there. Because you have to read the original language and say, well, what were they saying? What were they trying to say here? And you have to kind of interpret as you translate. And so we have some hurdles, right? And the and hermeneutics is learning what those hurdles are and how do, we, how do we jump those hurdles? How do we bridge the gap? That's what hermeneutics is. It's about biblical interpretation. What do we do with all, with, with all of this? And, and even when I'm reading it, how do I understand it? What's the best way to understand what the Bible is saying? And why is any of this important at all? Why, why, why spend our time looking at why, why does it matter how we read the Bible, how we interpret the, what the Bible is saying, and it's because of this. It's because what you believe impacts the way you live. And that's absolutely true. So what do you believe? I hope what you believe is biblical. 
And if what you believe is not biblical, what you believe should be shaped by what the Bible has to say. Well, what does the Bible have to say? Enter in biblical interpretation. How do we understand the Bible? And we should take what the Bible says and allow it by the power of the Spirit of God to transform our lives, that we might be conformed to what the Bible has to say. This is, this is the goal. Okay, so we've, we're in the fifth week of talking about hermeneutics, so we've covered quite some ground already. But tonight, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press in on one particular point. I shared with you uh, seven points before, um, seven kind of guidelines for biblical interpretation. Th- uh, Jimmy, you can put those on the screen. I see they're next there. And so some principles of biblical interpretation. The literal principle, the contextual principle. You should be able to gather what, what these mean just by what they're called, right? The one meaning principle. What does that mean? Well, one meaning only has one meaning here, and that's the point. That when you read something, it has one meaning. It does not mean multiple things all at the same time. It has one meaning, and that one meaning can have many implications for your life. And so there's one meaning, many applications. So if we get the meaning wrong, what do we also get wrong? How it applies to our life. Okay, so there's the exegetical principle. What's the opposite of exegetical? Do you have the answer again, Rochelle? You're the Stark. Oh, Craig got it. See me later for the gold star. Yeah. So eisegetical, exegetical, it, it just, it, it's a, either a reading into or a pulling out of. And so are you reading meaning into what something says? Do you ever read meaning into what people tell you? Isn't that hard to do, actually? Or, or hard to not do, excuse me? It, sometimes we read meaning into something and say, oh, that's, I thought you meant something different because you already attached meaning to it, but it's not what they meant. So sometimes when we read the Bible, many times actually, if we're not careful to pull this down, then we're reading meaning into what the text says, but you think it says that. You may even think it passionately, but just because you're passionate about what you think the Bible means, doesn't, that's not what it actually means. Your passion does not override truth. And so we're, we're in search of truth. The Bible is truth. So what does it mean? What does it say? We pull meaning out rather than placing meaning in. That's what exegetical principle, the linguistic principle, language matters. Uh, progressive principle, harmony principle. The harmony principle just means that the Bible is going to be in harmony with itself. And so if there are seemingly contradictory things in there, it's only seeming. It's, it's, it only seems like there's a contradiction, but we can work through it. So it, it's okay to have this, this pre-understanding that uh, the Bible is not going to contradict itself. So if I think it does, there's some work to be done because it's not going to. The Bible's not going to contradict itself. I skipped number six because that's where we're headed tonight, the progressive principle. Uh, what is that? Let's look at Hebrews chapter one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited 
is much more excellent than theirs. Okay. Most of that I just wanted to read because it's good. We're, we're stopping at verse 2 for our purposes tonight. Okay? So uh, what does it say in verses 1 and 2? That long ago, think long ago, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Are we our fathers? No. So God didn't speak to us like that. He spoke to our fathers long ago. Understand for father to them could just, just generations past, right? So spoke to Moses, spoke to Abraham. How? Spoke to the people, to the kings of Israel, to spoke to them by the prophets at many times and in, and in various ways, various times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Is the message different? Is what God said to the fathers different than what Jesus spoke to them in their days? Is it a different message? What do you think? Some, I'm mainly getting head nods negative. No, not a different message. Why, why would that be? Why is it not a different message? Because is the Old Testament the same as the New Testament? Is the same information found in the Old Testament as in the New? No, but you said it wasn't a different message. It's the same message. So which is it? Right? Huh? The harmony principle? The harmony principle? Oh, well, okay, right. Yeah, the Bible's going to agree with itself. It's not going to contradict itself. But is there new information that we once didn't have? Is there anything that the New Testament adds that the Old Testament did not have? Is it different information? Is it new information? Yes. Is it a different message? No. Are we understanding the difference? So the message has always been the same from cover to cover of our Bible, which is something for us, right? Because you know, we know there used to not be a cover. It was individual scrolls. So, but for us, we have it all in one neat little book here. And so from cover to cover for us, the message of the Bible from the very beginning is the same from the beginning all the way to the end. It's the same message. However, we have two testaments. We have an Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Tanakh. And then we have the New Testament, 27 books of the New Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament. And there are, at, depending on what you're reading, um, many, many years, centuries, dividing the Old Testament and the New Testament. Many different authors. But it's the same message. This is what we're talking about here is the progressive principle, meaning that God has revealed himself in his word. That is, uh, in theological terms, called special revelation. General revelation would be what then? We're such a small group, I feel like we can be a little bit more interactive here tonight. Okay, so what is general revelation? Right, creation itself, in that uh, we take that basically from Romans 1 and some of the Psalms, but Romans 1 is pretty clear. Um, you can look around and you can see that there's a God, and God has revealed himself in nature. That is what's called general revelation. Now, general revelation is not enough to save you, but it is enough to condemn you. How is general revelation not enough to save you? 
there's probably a God. But just that in itself is not going to lead you to... Uh huh. But the Creator. Yep. That's right. And to learn about how salvation works, what it is, how it comes, we have to appeal to special revelation. Right? There's, there's not going to be a writing in the clouds, at least I've, that I've ever seen, that tells you exactly the path unto salvation by faith in Jesus Christ and by faith alone. Right? But God has written it. And he has preserved it. And he has made it available to us. And it is here in his word. So, so there is, uh, God is revealing himself. God has revealed himself in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, but he has revealed himself also in the New Testament scriptures. But there's, there's never a change in what is true. And there is actually really never a new message brought in. The message is the same, but what, what's happened is that there's a progressive nature to God's revelation of himself, going from basically generalities more to specifics. Or you might say um, from the lesser to the greater, from the type to the anti-type. I'll give you an example. Um, God has been revealing himself and and how salvation is going to work. Uh, how has he done this? Well, take uh, the entire um, sacrificial system as an example of that. Okay? Take the high priest as an example of that. Take a spotless lamb for sacrifice as an example of that. Okay? And so forth. Okay? Take Passover, for example. Um, God has been revealing how he's going to work, but how it's going to be accomplished, what the Redeemer is going to look like specifically, how it all works together. If everything was in the Old Testament, of what need would we have of the new? Right? So we have the new, but it's not, in a sense, a new truth. It's not a new um, message, but it is new information to add to what God has already said. It clarifies what was possibly vague in our Old Testament. Okay? What is that? How does it work? Do you remember that the religious leaders had a whole lot of questions and thought they knew a, a whole lot of answers because they were trying to figure out specifics? And Jesus came along and gave them some specifics that they didn't realize before. I'll give you another example about how it goes from generalities to specifics or from the lesser to the greater. Uh, Jesus talking about the Ten Commandments, for example. What they had with the Ten Commandments, and then they had their oral law where they tried to obey the Ten Commandments the best that they could or all the law. And Jesus came around and, and gave us more specified information about how the Ten Commandments work and how they're, what they point to exactly. And uh, then we also have Paul's words that help us realize that the Ten Commandments were, were given so that we might recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Uh, that's the point of the law, to show you how sinful you are. And then Jesus also said, you know, you think actually killing a person is breaking the commandment? It, having hate in your heart for someone is breaking that commandment. And so Jesus is revealing a more specified truth of a truth that was already there. It was generalized and the New Testament is making it more specified. Does this make sense? Okay. Yeah, sure. From the lesser to the greater. Yep. Um, okay, so progressive revelation. I'm going to give you uh, 
a, a different term here. Think, tell me what you think about this term. Continuing revelation. We have progressive revelation, which we're learning about, God revealing himself over time, right, which is what he has done. Uh, what about continuing revelation? What might that mean? You don't like it or you don't know? You don't like it. Okay, Kevin doesn't like it. Do you know why you don't like it? Okay. Mm. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. There you go. It, it, it's continuing as it was, right? It, it's which is what you mean by status quo. It's like it, that's what was going on, and it's still going on. Uh, is that true? Is there continuing revelation today just as there was revelation given to the authors of the Bible? Rochelle says no. Go ahead, Jim. You raised your hand on everything. Yeah. From Old Testament to New Testament? Okay. So prophecy, prophecy is certainly attached to this idea of revelation, isn't it? Yeah. Prophecy is definitely attached to the idea, and that's the same thing you were saying, is that God is giving me a word, which is a prophetic, prophetic utterance, right? Which you may have heard that kind of speaking before. I'm going to give you another uh, concept, the way people use it today, um, is this idea of positive confession. Has anyone in the room ever heard of positive confession? No, it's not something I'm teaching you to practice. I'm teaching you about it to say this is wrong, okay? Just before we get into it, just as prophetic utterance, okay? So um, positive confession um, says things like this. Um, I'm claiming this and declaring it over my life today. You ever heard statements like that? I'm, I'm, I'm claiming, I'm declaring that I'm claiming it. it see, it's, it's, you already get it, right? Positive confession. And so you take a passage of scripture and you declare it over your life as if you are blessing your own life by means of declaring scripture over it. It's positive confession. 
Um, or it's exactly where it stems from. That's exactly right. Um, some even say, thus says the Lord. Uh, the Lord gave me a word for you today. Tell me, how is that not revelation? Now, it's different than there's a passage of scripture that I believe that is just uh, uh, maybe going to maybe gonna be powerful in your life. Uh, just thinking about you and I was reading this and I just want you to read this. And so you're giving them scripture. That's a different situation than the Lord gave me a word for you today. I had a vision of you sitting at home by your computer and this was going on in your life and I just need to tell you this, okay? Don't get on the plane. You know, so, I don't know, some, some kind of message that the Lord gave me a word for you today. Uh, how is that not uh, revelation? God giving revelation. Um, if you believed that there were still inspired prophets and apostles, would this change the way you interpret scripture? Think about that just for a second. If there were still inspired prophets and apostles today, would it change the way you interpret scripture? If there were. That's the question. That Roll with me. It would have to. Do some believe there are still inspired prophets and apostles? Does it affect the way they interpret Scripture? Does the way they interpret Scripture affect you? But does it? I would argue in many cases it does because it's on the bookstores, it's in the bookstores on the shelves, it's on Christian radio, it's in your face on TV, it's all over social media, it's everywhere. I would argue that it does affect us. But we need to understand that these big things that are kind of pervasive on us in, 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 in Christian culture as it is today is primarily composed of people who believe. I can say primarily because I know that it's the fastest growing uh, sect, we could say. And they're the ones that are really controlling the music in the media. And so what's happening is that we hear in, uh, a, a lot of statements in songs or uh, in, in any other way that you come across it, right? Um, particular messages, phrases, concepts, but you have to understand the way they interpret Scripture is very different than the way that we interpret Scripture. And so just because somebody says something, you think, oh, that's a cute, fun little idea. I really like that. You're going to grab a hold of it and start using it. Why are they saying what they're saying? Is that true? Why do they believe that? Um, I want to share with you tonight uh, uh, a concept. And if you've been with us for a while, a number of years probably, you've possibly heard this before, but it's time for a little refresher. Um, I had, to, I, I had to refresh myself even uh, on some of these specifics on this uh, as I was thinking about it. I went back to some notes that I had, and uh, it's been a little while. We're going to talk about uh, revelation periods. Revelation periods. If you can think about the entire Bible, think about when miracles occurred. 
Okay, just think about your whole Bible. When did miracles occur by means of or through an agent, an individual? When did God use people for miraculous activity? So we're not counting things like the sun standing still, okay? God didn't use a person for that. Uh, we're not talking about, uh, you know, uh, the flood. That's kind of a miraculous activity as well, but he didn't, he didn't use a person for that. There, there are things that God did um, to just do uh, when he didn't need a, a, an agent acting here uh, on earth. Well, he never needs one, but he didn't use one. Um, but I'm talking about individuals when God used people for miracles. Okay, Moses, Paul, Peter. Okay, there's a name for those kind of guys. The apostles. There you go. Okay, so Moses, the apostles, both. Yeah, we're going to lump him in with the apostles. That's, Mo that's Elijah and Elisha. Got anything else? That's only three. Moses? Yes. We have to attach him to Moses. Because it... It was it was the handing off, uh, it was the handing off of leadership to the to the people of Israel from Moses to Joshua, and it was God showing the people, I am, I am in this blessing, of giving over the leadership of Israel to Joshua from Moses. Okay, so same event, and it was uh, the separating of the waters of the Jordan water. I'm, I'm sure that's what you're referencing there. Uh, is that we're we're gonna tie that into the life of Moses? Okay just because it's at that exact same time in history, and that's important for what we're talking about. Okay, so we have Moses and, we'll, Moses and Joshua. We have Elijah and Elisha, and then we have the apostles and Jesus himself. Any other time in all of biblical history that you can think of where miracles occurred? So, in my notes, those are the three I have as well. Because this is where the concentration of miracles occur. Now, why do they occur there? It has to do with revelation. Uh, it has to do with revelation periods and God identifying his agents of revelation. So with Moses, Mo there were... Numbers fluctuate here, but some 22 miracles associated with Moses. We know where 10 of them came from, right, in Egypt. But there are some 22 uh, miracles associated with Moses, and I have Joshua in here. Um, but I will say, like in Jericho, when the walls fell down, Gibeon, where the sun stood still, those kind of activities, um, even when the river is divided, it's more of... Uh, and it doesn't really mean anything, but I'm just I'm kind of evaluating here. It's, it's more of, of what I would say God working a corporate miracle than through an individual agent. Um, but anyway, same time period. So the period of revelation accompanied by miracles is Moses and Joshua. Okay? The next we have is in 1 Kings, beginning in chapter 17, with Elijah and Elisha. Elijah 
had 11 miracles associated with him, and Elisha had 21 miracles associated with him. Um, Elisha asked for a double portion of Elijah's power. And he, it's interesting, it, Elijah had t- 11 miracles, Elisha had 21 recorded miracles, so almost double. Um, so that's pretty close. Uh, but Elijah marks the beginning of the time period of the prophets. Marks the beginning of the time period of the prophets, right? Um, and here's something that's interesting. Luke 1.17. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient and the wisdom to the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Who is that a reference to? He will go forth in the power and spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist. And he was a what? Prophet, right? Okay, so from the time of Elijah and Elisha, it's kind of like Elijah marks the beginning and end of, of that prophetic period. Um, but there is a gap, isn't there? When the last prophet uh, ends, the word of God ceases for some 400 years. And then who comes back on the scene? John the Baptist, right? Now, there is a situation that no one mentioned, but that I thought of with Daniel. You have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Was there some miraculous activity involved in that? And then you also have Daniel in the lion's den. Was there some miraculous activity in that? Yeah, there were miraculous activity. Right, it was God working. Do you see how that's different already than a revelation period? It's different already because God is not identifying particular agents of revelation, such as Moses or Elijah or Elisha or the apostles who were actually handpicked. So with Moses, I'm getting to a point here. There's a lot more details about this particular thing, but I'm getting to a point I want to make it. Moses, 22 miracles. Elijah, 11 miracles. Elisha, 21 miracles. Jesus, how many miracles do you think? Or maybe you know. That is right. You can't count them. How many are recorded in Scripture? Throw out a number. More than 21. Does he beat Elisha? In Scripture. There are debated between 37 and 42 miracles of Jesus recorded in the New Testament. But those are recorded in the New Testament. So what you're referencing is John 21, 25. There are so many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so Jesus did more than that. And so we've identified three time periods. We've identified the period surrounding Moses, surrounding Elijah, and surrounding Jesus himself with his apostles, right? Okay, so turn in your Bible to Matthew 17. And we're going to look at verses 2 and 3. Okay, it says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. 
and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Okay, stop right there. Who was there? Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Are those three very significant characters in the storyline of God and his revelation? Yeah? They are the three central figures as far as revelation is concerned and as far as God's miraculous activity among his people. Um, because then Jesus gives his apostles this power and this authority. And remember when we were talking about uh, textual criticism, what was uh, part of our, in order for a book to make it in the New Testament canon, it had to be either written by or associated with an apostle. Do you remember that as, as one of the criteria to be in the New Testament canon? So if a work was not either written by an apostle or was associated with an apostle, it was, listen, this might be helpful for someone devotionally, but it's not God's word. Because this person was not an apostle or had an association with an apostle. Such as, well, the book of Hebrews has always been one of these that is debated because people don't really know who wrote it. Historically, historically, it was believed to be Paul. So P46, which isn't over there anymore. It's stacked up in the corner over there. But anyway, P46, we had Philippians out. But you remember, there was a collection of Paul's works. And Hebrews was included in P46 because it was believed to be written by Paul. Later, um, uh, more so the thought is that it was a sermon that Paul preached recorded by Luke. So the content would be that of Paul but the style is like Luke. And so people say that, that's, that's an option. But anyway, um, why are we talking about all this and why does it matter? During revelation periods, God marks his agents by means of miraculous activity to show, to give signs, right? Isn't that the word that John liked to use? Signs. And to give signs to show, because remember, a sign is not a thing in itself. A sign points to something beyond itself. And so the sign pointed to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, right? And, and how did he prove that? By means of his miraculous activity, um, by what he said, who he was, what he did, right? The greatest um, uh, miracle being his resurrection from the dead. That was a pretty good one, right? and he's still alive. It worked. It was an effective miracle, right? So that to say, if we are convinced that God is still speaking and giving revelation as he did before, tell me then, where are the accompanying signs from God to show us that you are an agent of revelation? Do you have a sign? Mm-hmm. I believe that. Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, God performed that, right? God performed that activity. Now, what? Through the gospel. That's right. So, God. Does, so, 
when we talk about, mir- this has turned into a conversation about miracles. I know that's interesting. Um, but so when we talk about miraculous activity, do we believe that God can do miraculous things? Without a doubt. Do you see, that's the distinction. And when you talk to someone who uh, believes in living prophets and apostles, still speaking the word of God today with authority, evidenced by means of the miraculous gifts, they think that when we say, do you realize though that that was for a particular time in history? Do you realize that that's not still happening today, that there was something about that period of time that made it special? Yeah, it was a revelation period. It was when the Messiah was here on the earth. And so it doesn't mean that we believe that God is not finished doing miraculous activity. It does not mean that God can do what he wants to do. It does not mean, I've told somebody this before, we had a discussion about tongues, and I said, oh, you don't, so you don't believe in speaking in tongues. I said, well, I, I don't uh, believe in what is being practiced on a regular basis in many churches, um, speaking gibberish that no one can understand and is not being interpreted. Uh, absolutely not. Um, that's not found anywhere in the Bible. That's not what tongues is in the Bible itself. Um, now, do I believe that if I were somewhere and the person didn't speak English and God should so want me to communicate the gospel to this person that in that instance that he can do whatever he wants to do with me? Without a doubt, God can do whatever he wants. Whatever he wants, God can do. I do not limit God in that way, but we're talking about what is normative practice in the church. There's the distinction, isn't there? There's the distinction. What is normative practice within the church? Um, That's a conversation about miracles. Why are we talking about that? Somebody got me distracted on that. We're talking about revelation. Okay, so when we talk about revelation, there are revelation periods marked by particular times in history when God was clearly seen as identifying his agent of revelation. Okay? That's the big point, all right? And we see that, and uh, we see those three uh, time periods grouped together in the transfiguration, right? Who was there? Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. I always thought it was interesting, though, that Moses and Elijah had to have been identified by some kind of voice. Either that or they were wearing T-shirts that said, like, I'm Moses, because how would you know what Moses looks like? How did you know it was Moses? I don't know. I don't know how you knew it was Moses. Um, but it, somehow they were identified, and that's Elijah. How do you know that's Elijah? Well, I don't know, but somebody told me, I guess. That had to be it, and they believed the voice. I think they probably should in that circumstance. So all that to say, uh, let's, let's look at another passage together uh, quickly. Second <clears throat> Timothy three sixteen. you know that one. By the way, speaking of tongues, while you're looking there, if someone asks you because you're in these circles about, well, what, why not tongues? What about tongues? What's going on with tongues? What about, you know, Pentecost? All that kind of stuff. Um, just think just for a second about um, how significant it would have been for someone to see prophecy of, the, of one of the prophets, one of the minor prophets, unfolding before your eyes as you were a Jew in Jerusalem during Pentecost of who there were Jews from every corner of the known globe there at that time all speaking different languages and wouldn't you know it that tongues served a purpose to proclaim the words of God to all those Jews who had gathered together on Pentecost 
2 Timothy 3.16. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, referring to what? Right, the Old Testament, the Tanakh, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Interesting. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so this passage is used many times to speak of the sufficiency of scripture. The sufficiency of scripture. Something is sufficient, then we don't need any more. Right? Isn't that what sufficient means? Okay? I would say we have a sufficient amount of chairs in here for tonight's audience. Would you agree? We don't need any more. No, we don't really need you to take them away, but it's sufficient. Okay, we have enough. So much, in fact, that we don't need any more. So the word of God, scripture, is sufficient, meaning we do not need fresh revelation. If the word of God is already sufficient, of what need do we have of fresh revelation? More revelation. More word of God. Any more? Any more word of God? Why do you need more? Is the, are the scriptures not sufficient for you? Ephesians two nineteen through 21. Another passage to help us in how the apostles played a role in this. Ephesians two nineteen through 21. It says, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. The apostles and prophets, there's a foundation of the apostles and prophets. And who was writing in Ephesians? An apostle named Paul. The reason we're talking about this tonight is because I know how pervasive, that's the best word I can think of it, this thought of speaking a fresh word from God is. You need a fresh word from God. I have a fresh word from God. I have a word of God for you. Take this and claim it as your own. What word do you have for us tonight? These kind of things. We have God's word. We have God's word sufficiently found in our Bible. And this is really where uh, the whole conversation we had about where did our Bible come from? How did we get our Bible that we spent how many of our weeks talking about? And we get to here, and now that was the what, and so this is the why does it matter? Right? We talked about where our Bible came from. Now, what does it matter that we have it? What do we do with it? Well, we have the Word of God here, and we don't need any more Word of God. You might be wondering about prophets. Um, 
what does a prophet mainly do? Because we're talking about miraculous activity. Well, what about prophecy, these kind of things, right? Okay, so I'll, I'll answer that briefly. Um, if you think about a prophet, what does a prophet do? Tells the future. Fortune teller. Proclaims the truth. Right. They wear funny hats, right? They have a crystal ball. Yeah, no. Uh, tells the truth. So forthtelling and foretelling is generally how it's understood, right? Forthtelling and foretelling. Uh, because prophets do um, speak the word of God into particular situations, and they call people to obedience to the word of God, right? Um, so they proclaim the truth and call to obedience. But then prophets also tell of what's going to happen, a predictive prophecy. Sure, that's true too. Primarily, however, it's more about forthtelling than it is about foretelling. It's more about calling the people. So, re so a major prophet, we say just because they have major works, like Isaiah, for example, is he more concerned with predicting future events or calling the people to obedience to God's word? we studied all the minor prophets. What were they most concerned with? Predicting future events or calling people to obedience to the word of God? Calling people to obedience to the word of God. That was the, the primary work of, of the prophet. And so when we read uh, prophets, uh, both, uh, both are true. Some like to say, um, oh, modern day prophecy is taking the word of God and rightly... Um, explaining it according to our cultural setting. Okay? I don't know. You can take that for what it is. That it, if, it's, if it's proclaiming the truth of God and calling people to obedience to it. Okay. Um, but think about what would the role of prophets been? Why did God give apostles and prophets to the church? Well, when the book of Philippians was written to the church in Philippi, how long before the church in Corinth had access to that information? Huh? Probably a long time. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Was it immediate? Were there people who died not even knowing a lot of this information? And so how were people to understand the truths of the matter in this weird transition time? And so it's understood, and I think there's a good case here that this was the role of prophets that God gave at the time, is that there were apostles and prophets in the church, and not to despise the prophecies. God is using them right now for the building of his church. And so they were, in a sense, some have said, bridging the gap of this time period of teaching the church when they didn't have the scriptures as we have them readily available. There are different ways of describing that. I particularly don't use the word dispensation, but yes, I understand what you mean. Uh, it was a particular period of time that did, in its own surrounding, have a, a God was doing a particular work at that time regarding the proclamation of the word, a revelation period. And it was the apostolic age, 
right? It was a particular time in which God was doing a particular activity. And so um, is God still doing that today? Are we, are we still have apostles today? Do we still have active speaking? Li- That's why I started by asking that question. Do we have uh, apostles today still speaking? Do we have prophetic utterance giving new revelation of God? And if we did, would it change the way you interpret scripture? Uh, but if we don't, then we should be very careful to not let what is now the masses influence us into believing the way they believe because their current prophet has spoken this word to them. And we are to now take that and claim it as truth. Okay, because this is how it works. There are bishops, there are apostles that they see as actually proclaiming the very word of God. All right, I had another thing in here, but it's already 7.30. We need to be careful to understand why we believe what we believe, because what we believe affects the way we live, right? Um, How do we understand scripture? What is scripture? How do we read it? How do we understand it? And we need to be very careful also of outside influences that tell us what the word of God is meaning, because everybody is coming to the text from their own background. So why are you interpreting the Bible to mean that? What method of interpretation are you using? Are you using Pentecostal hermeneutics? Because that would be a far cry from grammatical historical hermeneutics. Okay, that's an example. Yes, go ahead, Jean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
If he's working all things together according to the counsel of his own will, then absolutely that is the case, isn't it? has to be. Because other than that, as R.C. Sproul would say, there are rogue molecules, which I don't think there are any rogue molecules in the universe. So I agree with that. Yeah, God is in control of it all. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, okay. All right. We better stop or I'll just I'll open up another can of worms and we'll start talking about it. I had something else here, but I've restrained myself, so you're welcome for that. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Okay. okay. Father, thank you so much for our, uh, our, our brief time here together tonight and just talking about your word, how to interpret it, what it means. Um, it, y- how you have revealed yourself in the word. Um, it wasn't all in once. It, it, it wasn't in one book. It was in 66. It wasn't at one period of time. It was over a long period of time. And this is how you chose to do it. And now we have your word. And I pray that you would continue to help us to love it, to cherish it, to desire to read it, and the desire to understand it properly so that we might be convinced in our hearts and our minds that these things are true and that you would, by your spirit, transform our lives to be conformed to your image, which is what we want, to be obedient to you, obedient children who are being matured in Christ. Uh, This is what we want. And so I pray that you would continue to teach us, continue to transform us, mold us into your image. And uh, I pray that you are pleased with our time and that our discussion has been fruitful tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.